This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. Our second speaker is uh, Professor Christian Kumar, who's the William R. Pennon Jr. Professor of Sociology at the University of Virginia. And um, he's written a number of quite canonical works now on revolution, prophecy and progress, uh, the sociology of industrial and post-industrial society, utopia and anti-utopia in modern times, and 1989 revolutionary ideas and ideals. He's also written a very distinguished, uh, made a very distinguished uh, contribution to the study of nationalism in his the making of English national identity, uh, on which there was a, a debate, uh, an Asian debate, a number of years ago. So, again, an ideal speaker uh, for for this conference. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, John. And uh, I too would like to thank uh, John Brulee, John Hutchinson. Uh, Faroes and the organisers of this conference for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here again. Um, I must say I'm slightly sorry that we're not in the old theatre as we used to be. Um, There was something about lecturing in the old theatre, particularly for those of us who were former students of the LSC ourselves. I remember listening to Ernest Gellner, uh, Ralph Miliband, uh, Bernard Crick in particular, those three who were my teachers at the LSC. And uh, in many ways, um, this conference has always reminded me of their thinking. Of course, Ernest Gellner, above all, whom we were remembering yesterday. But I'd like to put in a particularly word, a particularly strong word for Ralph Miliband, too, who died quite some time ago. And Bernard Crick, who was the one I got to know best of all, um, who died actually, I think, just a a couple of years ago. Um, Their work, their conversations stayed with me very much in both these themes of nationalism and revolution, so I would very much like to remember them today. Um, I suppose to start off with, we should note that there is, my my title by the way, just to to, uh, make clear what I'm going to talk about, is Nationalism and Revolution, Friends or Foes. I suppose to start off with the friendship between them, Um, I think most people have always assumed that there's a kind of natural, um, almost intrinsic connection between nationalism and revolution, kind of elective affinity between them, to use that expression of Goethe that Weber liked so much. when we think of the fact that so many nations claim to have been born of revolution, um, the Americans think of themselves as having been formed by the American Revolution of 1776, the French by the French Revolution of 1789, the strong nationalist elements in the revolutions of 1830 and 31, particularly in Belgium and Poland. Uh, the Poles are active again in 1846, again raising the nationalist flag. 1848, the springtime of nations, clear connections there between revolutions and nationalism. 
the revolutions, the, the very scattered group of revolutions from 1918 to 1919 that in many cases set up new nation states on the, under the principle of self-determination. And I think interestingly even the communist revolutions, which almost by definition are internationalist, the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, the Chinese Revolution of 1949, can be said to be also nationalist revolutions. I think that's always been clear in the Chinese case. Um, there seems to be less uh, of, a, of, of, a, of a case that's made for the Bolshevik Revolution as nationalist, but I think we can say that there's a very interesting relationship between nationalism and revolution in 1917 as well, as I'll go on to say. And of course, especially in the so-called third world revolutions of the 20th century, they are revolutions which are often said to be revolutions of national liberation. Um, the connection between revolutions and nationalism seems crystal clear in those cases. So in all these ways, you just look over that panoply of revolutions, and of course I'm concentrating largely on Europe, but Europe and beyond, um, there seems to be no denying the fact that revolution and nationalism are friends, they go hand in hand, there are all sorts of interesting connections between them. I don't want to deny that, at least in this talk, um, but I do want to stress particularly the divergence. I want to talk about um, a divergence in practice, in the course of these revolutions, between what I would call um, very generally the principles of revolution um, and, the, and the principles of nationalism. And I want to suggest perhaps there's a contradiction even uh, in the principles that lead to this divergence. It's not simply a matter of practice. There may even be a contradiction in principle between nationalism and revolution. And I think we can put it very generally as follows. Um, the goal of revolution, and of course I'm, I'm here excavating a particular tradition of revolution, there are all kinds of ways of defining revolutions, and we've heard um, some of them just now. Um, I'm, I'm stressing perhaps a certain aspect of revolution, it's probably uh, owing to Hannah Arendt as much as to anybody, um, and we can discuss this as to whether it fits in any way the actual instances of revolution that any of you might want to think about. But let's for the moment say, revolution is concerned with transformation. Nationalism is concerned with integration. The first one aims at novelty, at the complete transformation of the political, social and economic structures of society, the creation, in fact, of a new order of the world. So the stress is on originality, on novelty, of, of a total transformation of the existing order. Whereas nationalism is commonly, not always, but commonly a movement of recovery and recuperation. It's an attempt to revive or resurrect old and buried traditions. And even when it invents, as it often does, as we all know, it's the invention of tradition. The inventiveness consists in pretending uh, or manufacturing a tradition. Again, it's looking back. It's looking back to the past rather than the future. Um, in that sense, nationalism can't do without history. Whereas revolution often aims to break out of history, to end it, to go beyond history. Um, history is seen as a drag, as a nightmare, 
weighing on the brains of the living, as Marx put it. So you want to break out of it. Marx talked about the revolution as getting rid of the muck of ages. Now, I don't think any nationalist can say that. Historical muck is the substance of nationalism. To get rid of history is in a way to obliterate the whole nationalist project. So right from the start, it seems to me, there's a kind of divergence in principle between what revolutions typically aim to do and what nationalism has typically aimed to do. So that's my, my general point here, is that there is this kind of uh, contradictory relationship between the two. And I want to look at three examples of revolution to look at the interplay of nationalism and revolution in these, two, in these three cases. Rather like David Martin last night, I'll probably find out that I managed to get through two and then have to scramble through the third, um, but I'll, I'll at least try and mention all three. Uh, the three examples I have in mind are the 1789 French Revolution, uh, the 1848 revolutions, and the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution. Let's start then with nationalism and the French Revolution of 1789. The best known, the best studies, so we have lots of stuff to draw upon, and that's in a way partly why I choose these examples. Not being a historian, I'm dependent very much on the work of historians, and there is just such a massive amount written, certainly about 1789, also about 1917, and a pretty reasonable amount about 1848 as well, including by a number of people who are sitting here in the audience today. Um, so starting with the French Revolution of 1789, initially it's a movement, as we all know, aiming not just at the liberation of the French, but of the whole of humanity, with the French seeing themselves as being in the vanguard. So initially the revolution is cosmopolitan. It's not nationalist at all. It aims at the liberation of the whole of humanity, symbolized, best of all perhaps, in the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. There's no conflict between what the French tended to call at that time patriotism rather than nationalism. Uh, there's no conflict between patriotism and cosmopolitanism. It's an enlightenment project still in the early stages of the revolution. But as the revolution proceeds, and again I'm simply here putting together a very conventional account, I think, not a controversial account of the French Revolution. As the revolution proceeds, increasingly French nationalism takes precedence over the rights of others. Natural rights become national rights. The rights of man become the rights of the nation rather than of humanity as a whole. I think here we should consider the really seminal importance of the work uh, What is the Third Estate by the Abbe Siez, which from initially for some time being regarded as a kind of bourgeois document about the revolution, I think has increasingly been seen as the central theoretical statement about what the revolution uh, was all about uh, in the end. And particularly important here is what Siez has to say about the nation. Um, the nation, says Siez, is prior to everything. It is the source of everything. Its will is always legal. Indeed, it is the law itself. We must conceive the nations of the world as being like men living outside society, 
or in a state of nature, as it is called. Their exor the exercise of their will is free and independent of any civil form. Now that's a really dramatic statement about the nature of the nation and what it can do, untrammeled by any laws, it seems, in a state, or in, almost in a Hobbesian state of nature, um, where only the will of the nation matters. Um, it's a force of formidable power, one that brooks no resistance internally, but also refuses to recognize any law between nations. At the same time, it seems to me, it encourages a somewhat, sometimes narrowly conceived attachment to one's own nation, to the detriment of the rights of other nations. So that seems to me an important statement um, about how the French Revolution began to develop its own nationalism around the idea of the nation. If we contrast the 1789 Declaration of the Rights of Man with the 1793 declarations, Declaration of the Rights of Man, the one that was formulated by the Girondins, we see, I think, very clearly the, sh the shift that's occurred in the course of the revolution from universality to nationalism. Robespierre, who was the main opponent of this reformulation, the one who most insisted on the cosmopolitanism of the French Revolution, the need to see France as being simply in the lead of a worldwide movement of liberation, um, Robespierre protested um, against this new declaration of the rights of man that the Girondins were proposing in 1793. He says, it would seem that your declaration has been drafted for a human herd planted in an isolated corner of the globe and not for the vast family of nations to which nature has given the earth for its use and dwelling. And his own counter-declaration of rights, which was not adopted, um, contained the following articles. The men of all countries are brothers, and the different peoples should help one another according to their means, as if they were citizens of the same state. Uh, whoever oppresses one nation declares itself the enemy of all others. So that's the kind of way in which Robespierre and certain other cosmopolitan uh, activists in the course of the French Revolution, uh, the very interesting figure of Anarchasius Klutz, Prussian nobleman who turned up at the convention and pronounced uh, Paris the, the, the capital of the city of the world, not of France, but of the world, um, encouraged the war of liberation to create uh, a world state uh, with Paris as the center. This is the, the initial surge of the French Revolution, which is, which is then undermined um, by the increasing emphasis on the rights of the French nation over those uh, of the other. Again, if we can contrast the constitution of the year 1795, the constitution that was inaugurated by the directory of the year 1795 after they'd overthrown the Jacobins, contrast that with the constitution the earlier constitution of 1793, we see a restriction of sovereignty and uh, attenuation of democratic principle of the early French Revolution, and again, a stress on national sovereignty over the rights of man, over the rights of all uh, citizens. 
And I think it's within this context that we should understand how the word nationalism itself came to be coined. Um, I said that the French were more inclined to use the word patriotism than nationalism for most of the revolution, and that's true. They certainly talked about the nation, but not nationalism. The term that was, was most common was the 18th century term patriotism um, for most of the revolutionaries. But in 1798, and according to Jacques Godichaud, this is really when the word nationalism first comes into the political lexicon. It's in the work uh, of a man, Abbé Bacherel, uh, an opponent at that point of what the French Revolution was becoming. And this is what he has to say about nationalism. Nationalism, he said, and he's here commenting on the course of the French Revolution, nationalism, or love for a particular nation, amour national, took the place of love in general, amour général. With the division of the globe and of its states, benevolence was restrained within certain limits, beyond which it could no longer trespass. Then it became a merit to extend the bounds of states at the expense of neighboring ones. Then it was permissible to scorn foreigners, to deceive them and to offend them. This virtue was called patriotism. And he was styled a patriot who, just towards his countrymen and unjust to others, was blind to the merits of strangers and believed the very vices of his own country to be perfections. So that's Balliwell's introduction. I think it's, it's fascinating that the word nationalism comes in here in this very pejorative, in this very critical sense, as if to say nationalism has taken over the revolution. The revolution has been overwhelmed by this exclusivity, this, 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 this um, uh, selfishness, the self-centeredness of the nationalist principle has overtaken the enthusiasm and the humanity of the revolution as a whole. And I want to conclude this comment on the French Revolution uh, also, as the previous speaker, with a quotation from Hannah Arendt. Uh, this is not from her work on revolution, but from the origins of modern totalitarianism, which, where I think she comments very acutely on the shift that took place in the course of the revolution and the, the consequences of that shift. She says, the secret conflict between state and nation came to light at the very birth of the modern nation state, when the French Revolution combined the, de the declaration of the rights of man with the demand for national sovereignty. The same essential rights were at once claimed as the inalienable heritage of all human beings and as the specific heritage of specific nations. The same nation was at once declared to be subject to laws which supposedly would flow from the rights of man and sovereign, that is, bound by no universal law and acknowledging nothing superior to itself, namely, of course, the kind of definition that Sies provided of the nation. The practical outcome of this contradiction was, was that from then on, human rights were protected and enforced only as national rights, and that the very institution of the state 
whose supreme task was to protect and guarantee man his rights as a man, as citizen and as national, lost its legal, rational appearance and could be interpreted by the Romantics as the nebulous representative of a national soul which through the very fact of its existence was supposed to be beyond or above the law. National sovereignty, accordingly, lost its original connotation of freedom of the people and was being surrounded by a pseudo-mystical aura of lawless arbitrariness. That's strong stuff, and that's Hannah Arendt's comment on uh, what happened in the course of the French Revolution. Let's now turn to my second example, uh, Revolution and Nationalism in 1848. I think what's interesting here is that compared to the French Revolution, the conflict between nationalism and revolution emerged very much more clearly and much more quickly in 1848 than in 1789. And this is true generally, I think. Many of the commentators on the French Revolution have, have said the extent to which people learned what a revolution was through studying the French Revolution. The French themselves learned what a revolution was. The very concept of revolution seems to have been formed by the experience of the French Revolution. So they came into it as innocents of what a revolution was and came out of it very much more mature and experienced. And everybody learned from their experience. Theorists and practitioners all lived off the experience um, of the French Revolution. Trotsky remarks somewhere about uh, the German bourgeoisie of 1848 being shabbily wise with the experience of the French bourgeoisie uh, of 1789. And I think that's a rather nice phrase, that the knowledge that was possessed by people in 18, 1848 affected their behavior because they had seen what had happened between 1789 and 1815. Um, there's a kind of knowingness about the actors uh, in the 1848 revolutions. They know what a revolution was, or at least what it's supposed to be. They also know, knew what the logic of revolution was, what the natural course of revolution was. Um, and they were helped in this by further instances of revolution, the revolutions of 1830, 31, the revolutions of 1846. They were also helped now by a growing body of theory and writing about revolution in the wake of the French Revolution. Um, I think what the writings perhaps more of historians like Michelet and Guizot than of theor theoreticians like Marx and Engels, although we should remember, of course, that uh, some of Marx's early writings and the writings of Engels were uh, being uh, written in the late 1830s and early 1840s, so they were there ready for 1848. So revolution itself was by 1848 a concept that had been much discussed theorized, talked about. People knew. Uh, they went into 1848 with an idea of what revolution was. Similarly with nationalism. You'd had, again, the practical experiences. The Greek War of Independence, I think, of the 1820s was probably the most important example uh, to date of uh, a, a truly uh, nationalist movement which actually succeeded. 
So that here you had a demonstration of the possibilities of uh, realizing uh, nationalism in practice. Um, nationalism was a very strong component in some of the revolutions of 1830 to 31, particularly Belgium and Poland, of course, again in 1846 with the Polish uprising. And equally, as with the case of revolution, you have a lot of interesting writing and thinking about nationalism going on. Um, the works of Fichte and his disciples, uh, Kosciuszko, who was mentioned also earlier on, uh, Mazzini, of course, and his disciples, perhaps the most influential of all, but also the work of artists and poets. Um, of course, Anthony has now just published a book, which I'm looking forward to read about all this, so I'll know a little bit more than I did when I first wrote this lecture. Um, artists like Delacroix, poets like Byron and Mitskevich had already publicized in a very dramatic way the idea of nationalism, the idea of the nation and, and, and the celebration of it. So there's a very rich uh, kind of intellectual baggage that was brought into the 1848 revolutions that I think had profound effect on the revolutions and also in a sense why they were speeded up versions of what had happened in the French Revolution. Things happened in 1848 in a matter of months, perhaps even days, that had taken years in the course of the French Revolution to be realized. So the scene was set, in other words, for a kind of epic clash in 1848 between the principles of revolution and the principles of nationalism. Um, I think that's partly why you get such a wonderful store of writing after the events of 1848, not just the preparatory writings that I've been discussing about the theory and practice of revolution and nationalism, but the reflections that these very abrupt events, you know, we're talking here about revolutions that lasted sometimes a month, at the most a year or a year and a half, and yet it's incredible how much of the literature of revolution derives from the 1848 revolutions. Let me just give you a few instances. Uh, the memoirs of Alexis de Tocqueville, who was a minister uh, in the early stages of the February Revolution of 1848, the souvenir, wonderful account of the, the, the mood and the, uh, the, the kind of ways in which people were thinking in 1848. Uh, my favourite is Alexander Hertzson's wonderful memoirs, My Past and Thoughts. Hertzson was around at the time, and when he came to write his memoirs, he has some wonderful portraits there of the revolutionaries of 1848 most in a rather cynical style, but nevertheless incredibly penetrating accounts of what was happening in those events. And of course, some of the best writings of Marx and Engels themselves on this Communist Manifesto of 1848, Marx's class struggles in France, Engels's Germany, revolution and counter-revolution, and perhaps the pièce de résistance, the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte by Marx. So you have this very, very rich, uh, kind of legacy of reflection uh, that were thrown up by the events of 1848. So what were the principles of the 1848 revolutions? Well, firstly, of course, a recapitulation of 1789. That, that had to be a part, I would say that every revolution has to recapitulate the French Revolution. You cannot be a revolution without, without, in some sense, paying homage to the great French Revolution of 1789. So liberty and popular sovereignty, yes, that's the first thing. The newer thing is socialism and communism, um, as portrayed variously by Blanqui, uh, by Louis Blanc, uh, by, by Bakunin, and of course Marx and Engels. Uh, they, they become 
fairly early casualties, particularly in France and the, in the great June days and the, the crushing of the workers' re revolution in, in the June days. Socialism and communism will have to wait for the future. But above all, and thirdly, it's nationality. Nationality really comes into its own in 1848. It emerges, as we saw in the case of the first French Revolution, but in 1848 it's there right up front. 1848 is, after all, the springtime of the nations. Now, as in 1789, these goals initially were not seen as necessarily in conflict or incompatible with each other. They were seen as all of a piece. Um, the manifesto of the Slav Congress of April 1848 addressed the whole of Europe in the name of the liberty, equality, and fraternity of European nations. All right, so it's still European, but nevertheless it's all European nations, not just the Germans or the Poles or the Italians. Liberty and nationality were seen as going together. It was only in the nation-state that liberty could be secured and the people gained sovereignty. So here, as in 1789, a clear hope, a clear statement of both liberty and nationality, equality of nations, liberty of the individual, that is what the 1848 revolution set out to do. And we know fairly quickly how that succumbed to the superior force of certain national principles and certain national powers. Um, the story is best told uh, through the events in uh, Central Europe, uh, through the meetings of the Frankfurt Parliament and of what happened in Prague and in Vienna and in Budapest, particularly in the Habsburg lands. Um, I will give you just uh, one quotation, which I think uh, is relevant here, uh, for Sorry, can't find my one quotation. Of course, I lost it. The quotation is from the German liberal Wilhelm Jordan, um, who talks about healthy national egotism as being the principle that has to govern the, uh, the deliberations of the Frankfurt Parliament. Healthy national egotism. That phrase stands out in the whole speech by this delegate, uh, this Prussian delegate, to the Frankfurt Parliament. It's the idea that however much we may mourn the fact that other nations have to give way, the right of one's own nation stands supreme and must stand supreme. And on that basis, uh, the Germans in Posen or Posnania, the Germans in Bohemia, the Germans in Austria have to recognize that their rights must triumph over the rights of all the other people. It must triumph over the rights of the Poles in Posen. Uh, it must triumph over the rights of the Czechs in Bohemia. It must triumph over the Slovenians uh, of uh, Austria. Similarly, in the Habsburg Empire, the other chief nationality, the Magyars, saw themselves as necessarily needing to exercise this healthy national egotism uh, over their subject nationalities, the Slovaks, the Croats, the Serbs, the Romanians. Uh, the Poles, where they had their chance, while they had to succumb to the Germans in Posen, where they had their chance in Galicia, 
they too lorded it over the Ruthenes, the Ukrainians of Galicia. Marx and Engels recognized the right of these historic nations, Italians, Magyars, Germans, Poles, uh, over uh, what Engels called the numerous small relics of peoples who had had the luck to be absorbed by these great historic nations and who therefore should allow their own interests to be absorbed into the rights of the historical nations. Um, Lamartine in 1848 uh, saying we are sorry we can't go to the aid of Poland as we all said we would. Everybody was all for resurrecting Poland and bringing Poland back to the frontiers of the pre-1772 partition. But alas, he says, Lamartine says, we love Poland, we love Italy, we love all oppressed nations, but most of all we love France. Uh, and alas, French interests mean that we, we cannot really commit ourselves to the liberation of Poland. And so, in the 1848 revolution, they were all uh, particularly in Frankfurt, outraged when the Czech historian Frantisek Palatsky, this is a very famous letter, when Palatsky sends his letter uh, to the Frankfurt Parliament, who've, who've asked him to uh, appear as a delegate, he declined saying, as a Czech, he had no wish to join a German nation. They really couldn't understand that. After all, Palatsky spoke perfect German, he wrote many of his works in German, why on earth was he now claiming that he was different from all the other Germans of Bohemia. Um, so, in 1848, the, the clash between revolution and nationalism appears very, very quickly, and nationalism very, very quickly, it seems to me, overrides the early uh, hopes of, uh, again, liberating uh, all the nations of Europe rather than just a particular section of them. And very finally, I knew I would, I would have to rush uh, with the last uh, example, uh, of the Russian Revolution. This is an ironic reversal of what I've been saying so far. In the first two cases, 1789 and 1848, um, you get revolutionary principles which are cosmopolitan, international, if you like, being overwhelmed by the force of nationalism as an exclusionary and, and, and uh, oppressive principle. Um, in the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, you get quite the opposite, interestingly enough. It is, of course, announced as an internationalist revolution. Uh, the Bolsheviks declare nationalism to be a bourgeois ideology, reactionary, diversionary, aiming at suppressing the consciousness of the working class. And initially, the Bolshevik revolution expects its own revolution to be simply uh, the spark that ignites revolution all over the developed world. Uh, so that, uh, as Lenin and the others first thought, the Bolshevik Revolution couldn't possibly survive unless there was an accompanying world revolution. Well, we know what happened to that. Uh, they had to start constructing socialism in one country fairly quickly. We also get nationalism emerging in two very interesting ways. One, you get the... Well, first of all, I want to say that I think in many ways the 1917 revolution itself can be seen not just as a communist revolution, but as a nationalist revolution, um, in the sense that uh, Lenin and the Bolsheviks were declaring very much as Sies declared in 1789 that the third estate formed the nation, not the aristocrats, not the clergy, but just the third estate. Uh, in 1917, the Bolsheviks were saying something similar. The workers and the peasants formed the nation. 
uh, of course not in this case the bourgeois elements of a third estate, but the, the peasants and the, and, and, and the workers are the essence, if you like, of the Russian nation. So there is a very strong sense, it seems to me, in which 1917 can be read as a nationalist revolution as well as, a, as an internationalist one. Uh, but nationalism then appears additionally in two new forms. A resurgence of old-fashioned Russian nationalism in the late 1930s and above all during the great so-called Great Patriotic War where Stalin feels the need to mobilize the population around some kind of nationalist uh, ideology and the most obvious one is Russian, the Russian language, uh, Russian poets like Pushkin become icons of the Soviet uh, regime in the course of the late 30s and 40s. And secondly, and this is one that's uh, in many ways the most fascinating and has been very well studied by people like Yuri Sleskin and uh, Terry Martin in his book The Affirmative Action Empire. The other thing was the way in which the Soviet nationalities policy uh, set in motion a whole train of new nationalities, many of which had not even existed before, among groups that had never even thought of themselves as nations. And I'm thinking here of the policy of indigenization, Korenizatsiya, that became the central nationality policy of the Soviet Union in, in, the, in, in the 20s and the early 30s. And this is because right from the start, the Bolsheviks recognized the plurality of the groups that existed within the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, like the Tsarist Empire before, was a multinational state, perhaps even a multinational empire. They had to come to terms with that diversity, and they did. Um, they acknowledged quite genuinely the, the differences, the, the customs, the traditions, the cultures of the different nationalities, and they created republics around each so-called titular nationality. The Uzbeks, the Georgians, the Ukrainians, all had their own republic, their own communist party, their own academy of sciences, their own TV and radio stations, a whole panoply of institutions that went with ethnic or national membership. They selected particular groups in particular regions and said, you are the nationality of this republic. And as it were, built up around those nationalities uh, a whole set of institutional complexes, which were of course then waiting to be exploited when the Soviet Union collapsed in uh, uh, mm, I'm moving centuries now, uh, 1991. Um, nationalism didn't destroy the Soviet Union, but these national institutions were there, waiting in the wing, ready to be occupied by the previous uh, communist elite of each titular nationality. Um, so in turn, many ways then, the Bolshevik Revolution starts up internationalism and ends up by a very interesting route in creating nationalities where many of them had not existed before. It's a kind of twist to the story of the relation between nationalism and, and revolution that has its own irony. I'll stop there. Thank okay. you very much. Thanks very much.